This is Dystopia and Catastrophe. I am Roman. Welcome back to it. You can also find this podcast and the bonus material around it on Podcasts with Roman over on Patreon. Should be a link in the description box to this podcast. In this episode, we are going to cover Chapter 7. And what a Chapter 7 it was. It just, uh, it gets darker and more bleak, but uh, at this point we have the large crowds of people showing up down the highway, and the city trying to deal with it. As we see, you know, the mass exodus of people out of the cities and into the smaller towns as if there's some salvation to be had out there in the countryside, when clearly there is not. So they begin to try to channel these people around the town to get them out of the area so that the city, the town doesn't really have to contend with the uh, unsustainable crowds. I mean, the town can't even sustain itself at this point. It's starting to get to that point where it can't even help itself. Right now we're on day number 18. So we've jumped from day number 10 to day number 18 between chapter 6 and 7. And the first great dying off continues to happen. As many as 80 plus deaths in just one day. And they try to hold on to some sense of normal in some regards. And you know, some things normal still stick around. Relationships continue. Families continue to the extent possible. As they see their schools kind of transform, I mean, the public schools really just get abandoned at this point. The college starts turning into a uh, an operations center for the uh, the new militia of the town, and they find it useful to go back to some of the old reference materials. You know, I did take notice of this, you know, the, the magazines and books. There is mention in this, um, I believe it was this chapter about the magazines and the books. They start finding the old magazines that tell people how to do this, how to do that. Could be a popular mechanics magazine, a how-to magazine, something like that, and books of a similar nature. These days, we rely a great deal on YouTube for how-to and online articles for how to do things. Back in the day, it was books and things of that nature. I would typically have these, like for my vehicle, for example, I would typically have these Haynes Repair Manuals. Haynes is a company that used to put out, I don't know if they still do, I meant to check on that at one point, but they were always so many different variations of cars in a single uh, production cycle. You'd have different engines, different types, and so on and so forth of the same car. Sometimes it was difficult to discern what was what, but you could get these Haynes Repair Manuals for your car, and I actually found those quite useful back in the day. These days, a lot of it is online, YouTube, and so on and so forth, and honestly, just historic knowledge. Over the years, I just gained a kind of knowledge about how to do certain things with cars. But those repair manuals really come in handy. And the magazines and stuff like that that show you how to do things are very handy as well, although magazines are almost non-existent. I actually, my my very last magazine subscription actually ran all the way up until 2023, this year, the, the year I'm recording this episode. And then one month, it just kind of stopped. They stopped putting out the magazine. It was a computer magazine. Even though you can get a lot of that material online, obviously, computer news and whatnot, there were some computer magazines still around that would put out more comprehensive articles about topics, uh, like how to set up this kind of a, an operation with your computer or whatever, what have you. And I found those quite useful, especially as reference material to go back on. But uh, now that stuff's just disappearing. Going to get more and more difficult to find that stuff. But the town here is certainly making use of a lot of that stuff. Of course, back when this book was written, 2009, I believe it was, there was a lot of that stuff still around. It's really, the the great dying off began right around that time period. As far as the, the reference materials go, the great dying off started. And today it's more and more difficult to find that stuff. I always liked it, though, and I still like my books that way, too. I like I like hardcover paper books. I don't like ebooks. I actually tried the ebook thing 
you know, for a while. But I bought a couple of books on ebook and I read them all the way through. I found it to be really just a pain to deal with. And as far as taking my notes and stuff when I read books, like back when I did it, the ebooks were still kind of in an early version and the page the page numbers weren't synchronized properly. So you would take notes about a certain page and then later on you come back to it after the software gets all updated and the books get all updated and your page references are all screwed up. So I, I, at that point I was like, I'm done with this crap. Not to mention the, the very real knowledge that they could come in and update the book and just delete whole chapters or delete words or change things that they want to change. There's kind of a dystopian perspective to be had there, which is very appropriate for this podcast. The, the constant editing of books in electronic form, I, I just don't trust it. There's nothing like having a paper copy of a book, and they try to make that clear in this chapter, some of those old reference materials and how valuable they are, like the, like the mysterious report that makes appearances in this book. Uh, John's mysterious report that he pulls off the shelf and delivers to the mayor's office. That's a paper copy. There you go. So hold on to that paper reference material. This uh, this chapter, this book, honestly, is a walking advertisement for that. We get some updates on the war news. Middle East, North Korea, ongoing war, perhaps, or they were just straight nuked. The container ship incident gets talked about. Three missiles off of a container ship. Uh, the Pacific was also hit. That is to say, Japan and whatnot. Everybody except China. Isn't that interesting? And I wonder why, I find it fascinating that Mr. Fortune, the author of the book, he wrote the story deliberately so that China was not hit by this. That's very interesting. Apparently, Russia was hit. Europe, Eastern Europe was hit, which would include Russia to some degree. But Great Britain, of course, was not. It was not hit. It was. It, was, it escaped the fury, which is good. And what about the long-term prospects of this war? How does a country like the United States fight, continue to fight a war when it's so crippled by this? And again, we get back to the great in, the, the great temptation of an, a, an adversary abroad to actually do this. That's the beauty of it from their perspective. I mean, this kind of an attack could potentially cripple the whole country and cause the country to literally just start killing itself. And all they got to do is just sit back and watch. And as these cities and these counties and these towns just basically fall apart, have you ever wondered about your city council? I've had this thought recently, and I meant to talk about this elsewhere. Most people, when they elect their local government, town councils, state government, state legislature, the governor's office, they don't elect people for times of trouble. They elect them for times of comfort. I mentioned this previously. And have you ever interacted with your town council? Because I have. And I tried to think about this kind of a disaster happening anywhere near where I lived. And when I thought about the town councils around my area, one word came to my mind disaster. What an absolute disaster it would be to have those morons in charge of anything when this kind of a problem kicks off. If it kicks off, God forbid. That's something to think about. Maybe next time you select these people, you actually select these people for the t- for a time of crisis, it, just in case it happens, instead of a uh, time of comfort. But most people don't think that way. Most people think, well, this is America. Nothing bad is ever going to happen here because this is America. Nothing bad ever happens here. The dumbest thing anybody ever said. Speaking of which, once something bad does actually happen, we finally realize just how valuable the well-regulated militia is. What is it that Second Amendment says? 
A well-regulated militia being the necessity of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I'm paraphrasing. I don't have it right in front of me, but I believe those are the exact words of the text. I've read it more times than I can remember. We have these kids up at the college doing military drills led by Sergeant Washington in some, in some regard. The president of the college is a very interesting personality too, isn't he? He seems to know what time of day it is, even though John uh, Matherson does not. Isn't that weird? I think, uh, I don't know if William Fortune did this deliberately, but I am actually, I, I take issue with his attitude in this chapter, our protagonist. I really do. I, I think he's gotten a little bit soft, and it shows up in this chapter. He starts questioning the militia, the need of the, the, the necessity of the militia, and should we be doing this, or how should we be doing this, this, that, and the other thing. But you would figure, being a student of history, he would understand, especially American history. I mean, historically, the militia was like a thing in the United States of America, right? Yes, it was. Now, it's been abandoned for a long time in many respects, but it wasn't always that way. And it's not an army. There was somebody in this chapter, I believe, who said, quote-unquote, we need an army. This is not an army. Anybody who's listened to my other podcast knows that there is a difference between an army and a militia. A militia is constituted for the defense it is not, not organized for the offense. An army is for offensive purposes and defensive purposes both. A militia is strictly for defensive purposes. So this is not an army they're raising, it's a militia. And it, it acts like a militia, it talks like a militia, it works like a militia, it's a militia. It's like the militia at Lexington and Concord back in 1775 with Captain Parker. Captain Parker would be like Sergeant Washington in this, uh, in this story. But John, our protagonist, keeps having this, this feeling that the militia is not right. He sh they shouldn't be doing it. He's very on the fence about it. It takes the president of the college to convince him that it's the right thing. And I, it, again, it surprises me. I don't know why William Fortune wrote this character, especially this guy of all, all guys. This guy was in the military. He's a student of history. He, un he should understand what the well-regulated militia is. But then again, we've been lied to for so many years about it. It wouldn't surprise me if even somebody of that that character didn't understand it, but William Fortune writes this guy like he's this kind of reluctant and, you know, very confused character around this concept of the militia when you would think the first thing out of this guy's mouth on day number one would be, we need a militia. Because that would have been my sentiment. As surely as they had a militia at Lexington and Concord, we need a militia. That would be my, that would be my sentiment, because I know the story of it. I know why it was there, and I know what they did and how they worked. So yeah, I think the old colonel here, Colonel uh, Colonel Matherson, that is, he's gotten soft. I don't know how that happened, but he gets put in charge of the militia. Maybe that's why uh, Mr. Fortune wrote him this way, the reluctant leader. It's kind of a George Washington kind of characteristic, although George Washington certainly understood the necessity of a militia and never doubted it. He actually worked to constitute the militia in Virginia, leading up to 1775. He was chairman of a committee out of Fairfax County that was, uh, that was putting forth the notion of, yes, we need a militia. And in this episode, we also hear about uh, our friends in Congress. They, they kind of make a reference to these many reports that were floating around Congress that were unanswered, warnings that went unanswered, because the people in Congress were doing what people in Congress do. They were cashing checks and buying mansions. They were listening to the lobbyists. 
and they were, you know, busy taking out these vengeful exercises on anybody who gets out of line, like taking away their parking spaces. Instead of dealing with America's enemies, they attack each other and take away their parking spaces, they take away their committee assignments, and do. And while that's going on, a container ship can find its way into the Gulf of Mexico, launch three missiles, and destroy the United States of America, for the most part. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The general government, by and large, and by the way, when I say the general government, that's what the Founding Fathers called it. The general government is the federal government. The general government is largely constituted to handle external affairs, especially Article 2. Article 2 is almost expressly there to handle external affairs and deal with crap like this, these kinds of threats to the United States. But when you get away from that, it opens the door for the enemy. And that's how this scenario unfolds. And I believe, in part, that's what our friend uh, Mr. Fortune, Dr. Fortune, I should say, probably. I don't know if he has a preference, but William Fortune writes it like this was this could have been prevented. And he talks about it in interviews. I've listened to uh, William Fortune be interviewed, and he talks about it like there's things we can do to try to mitigate this problem. You could never prevent the problems entirely, but you can do things to mitigate the effect. The effect. And make sure that it's not quite so extensive, the damage, and the impact upon the American people. And oftentimes that just doesn't get done because it's not popular. There's no money to be made. Where am I going to make any money doing this? I don't know. So they just don't do it. But at the very least, despite the uh, the protests of Mr. Matherson, at least initially, they start forming up companies of militia, exactly as General Washington probably would have would have wanted. General, by the way, when I say General Washington, I mean George Washington, not Sergeant Washington. It gets confusing, but I would refer to the Washington in this book as Sergeant Washington, obviously, because that's who he is. And if I say General Washington, I mean, like, the general, George Washington. But General Washington would have wanted it this way, I think, based on what he said out of Fairfax County in 1774 and 75. I do have some historic basis for saying that. I don't just make this stuff up. So now they've got this crowd of people coming down the highway who, if they were allowed to, would simply just lay waste to the town in one form or the other. So they have to try to corral those people and get them out of the area, which is what they try to do, because they can't help everybody. I mean, if they try, that everybody's going to die. And then there's also this impending doom of the storm of organized gangs and cults and things like that that are beginning to form up. I mean, in the midst of chaos, people latch on to any kind of organization they can. And in some cases, that's going to be organized gangs. And that's very dangerous. And like I said before, I, the, the, the cavalry may not come to help. So these people are going to be largely on their own to defend their town against the roving gangs of nut jobs and criminals that are out there. So what do you think about all this? I mean, do you think that, um, do you think that the militia is very in a very obvious necessity? I mean, not even knowing about the coming of the organized gangs and cults, but would you be as reluctant to form the militia as as Matherson is in this chapter? Because like I said, I, on day one, or certainly in week number one, I would have been all over that, just simply because I know the history of the militia to some extent, and I know the value of it. There's a reason why they had local militias back in the early, you know, in the early days, 1600s, 1700s, and even into the 1800s. They had local militias for this kind of thing. A lot of times these counties were on their own. And they had to prepare for the defense of the frontier, They had because back when the United States had a recognizable frontier, and they had to prepare for the defense of the their local communities, their state governments, and all the rest of it. Once the cavalry is not going to be readily available to come help, 
that that suddenly becomes a necessity all over again. And we get right back to the 1700s. And people would even say that if they were in this scenario. Oh my gosh, it's like we're back in the 1700s all over again. Well, then start conducting yourself like you're in the 1700s. Maybe there's something to that. Start forming up the militia and get it ready. But let me know what you think. If you have any comments on that, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Let me know. Even after this season is over, some people might, because this, this podcast is very early. It takes people a while to find the podcast. I can break off a separate episode for Q&A exclusively even after this season is over with. If somebody wants to leave a review, a comment, or a question, or something like that, either on Apple Podcasts, or if you want to leave it through the Patreon at Podcasts with Roman, you can, and I'll do a separate episode just kind of hearkening back to this material. It never gets old talking about this stuff. It really doesn't, because this is an issue that just keeps coming up over the years. Like I said, this book was written, uh, one second after it was written in 2009. Obviously, there were subsequent books. Uh, there were sequels to this book. And as of the date I'm writing this, they're still writing them, okay, basically, or they're still, they're still selling them. And this topic still comes up in Congress. This topic still comes up in military circles. This topic still comes up in preparedness circles. It never gets old. So regardless of whether this season is over or not, go over to Patreon, leave a question or comment about this, or do it on Apple Podcasts. I'm happy. I'm fine with that. And we will continue on. And next episode, obviously, is going to be covering Chapter 8. I look forward to that. And I hope that you will all join me on the next episode as we talk through these issues and these scenarios and how this can affect us and what we should do to understand the potential threat and how to be a better prepared society and how to encourage our country, including those uh, those yokels out there in Congress, to do the right thing and try to try to protect against this to the extent possible. I hope you'll join me on the next episode. And with all that said, this is Roman signing off. Thank you. Thank you.